John the Baptist wasn't exactly what you or I would call flexible, was he? He wasn't a wishy-washy sort of guy. He wasn't flippy-floppy. In Jesus' words, he was no reed shaken by the wind. He wasn't a man who was soft, wearing soft clothes. He was a prophet. And Jesus says he was more than a prophet. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's what Jesus says. And that makes sense to us, right? When we picture John, we picture a man of conviction, a man who knew what he was about and what he wasn't about. John was not about to do anything that he wasn't completely on board with. And yet when Jesus shows up, what do we find happening to the Baptist? We find John like a reed, swaying in the breezes. One minute he's telling Jesus, there's no way I'm going to baptize you. You should baptize me. And the next minute, the next minute he's pouring water over the head and witnessing the great epiphany of Christ's baptism. What could make John this great stalwart man? What could make John this man of complete conviction, this man who poured himself completely into his work, what could make John so quick to change his mind? Well, it's a rather simple sentence that Jesus spoke to him, isn't it? It's a simple sentence, but it's one that is loaded for us, even as it was loaded for John. Listen again to how Jesus changed John's mind. Let it be so now, John, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Simple sentence, right? You could memorize it. You could write it out every day this week, and by Saturday, you could all have it memorized. Even those of us who are getting older could do that. But with that one phrase, Jesus, born now of the Spirit, blows away John's objections. He changes the mind of this great prophet. How can that be? How can such a simple sentence, this one little phrase, let us now fulfill all righteousness, how can that change the mind of John the Baptist? Well, you may recall a few things about John. Remember that time when the messengers of the Jews came to John and tried to figure out who he was? Remember how they asked him, are you the Christ? No. Are you the one who is to come? No. Are you Elijah? No. John didn't want to talk about himself at all. Who are you? They said. And John quoted from Isaiah. He quoted from Isaiah chapter 40, I'm just a voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I want to suggest to you this morning that when Jesus mentions all righteousness, and we could translate that word all justice, the pieces of Isaiah click together for John. And the same thing happens for us when we hear of it today. Listen to how these pieces fit together like jigsaw pieces. Behold, Isaiah said, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. See how that fits with the father's pronouncement. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Again, Isaiah said, I have put my spirit upon him. And Matthew's gospel records for us, Behold, the heavens were opened, and Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 
Long before Isaiah had prophesied, he will bring forth justice, righteousness to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And in case you missed it the first two times, Isaiah goes on and says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice, righteousness in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. See how that clicks together with Jesus' words? Let it be so now, Jesus said, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all justice. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it, when the jigsaw pieces snap into place? It's a wonderful thing. Aha, we say. Finally, it fits. A little epiphany of sorts. When all those assorted shapes and sizes that look just like a a jumbled mess, you know, when you first open up the box, when they all come together and a picture is revealed, that picture is made manifest and comes to life, oh, it's a great feeling of satisfaction, isn't it? Well, the book of Isaiah can feel like a rather unsolvable puzzle. In part, that's because it was written so long ago. Isaiah lived 2,700 years ago, and anything written that long ago is going to be kind of a tough nut to crack. We're not all that familiar with the names and the places and the events that Isaiah and Israel with him were living through. This present danger that he speaks of, of an Assyrian empire, and the looming threat on the horizon of the Babylonians, it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us, does it? And then you add into that the fact that so much of Isaiah is poetry. And which of us would pretend to be an expert in poetry? It makes Isaiah feel like an unsolvable puzzle. But it was that way even for those who came much earlier than us. Even for those who were chronologically closer to Isaiah and who were geographically nearer, they always still puzzled over him. In the book of Acts, we find the earliest sermons of the apostles, and we have an example of a Bible study of sorts. In chapter 8 of Acts, there is a man from Ethiopia, an Ethiopian eunuch, who is puzzling over the book of Isaiah. He asks Philip, who is Isaiah talking about? Who is this servant of the Lord? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Who is this servant? Is it a single person, or is it the nation of Israel as a whole? Four times in Isaiah's prophecies, we come across this puzzling figure, this one called the servant of the Lord. We heard it in our Old Testament reading today that the mission of the servant is to bring forth justice to the nations. And if we would keep reading in Isaiah, we would come to chapter 49, where we would hear not the servant spoken about, but the servant speaking in his own words about how the Lord formed him and sent him into the world like a polished arrow. In chapter 50, the same servant of the Lord would again speak for himself of the confidence he has in his mission because the Lord upholds him. And perhaps most famously, we hear always on Good Friday, that great servant song of Isaiah 52 and 53, where it is described in excruciating detail how the servant will suffer, how he will suffer not not for his own sake, but will suffer on behalf of the nations. By his stripes, you will be healed. What a glorious thing then for this puzzling prophecy of Isaiah to come together in Matthew's gospel in the water of the Jordan River. Like a glorious jigsaw puzzle, what was concealed in Isaiah's prophecy is revealed for you today in Matthew's gospel. 
the servant of the Lord, in whom his soul delights is God's own son, the beloved, who always does his father's good pleasure. We hear today the same thing that Philip told that Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It's always about Jesus, isn't it? The good news is always about Jesus. There's plenty of other good newses out there in the world, but the best news of all is that which is about Jesus. And today we find that the good news about Jesus is good news about justice. The baptism of Jesus gives us a picture of true righteousness. That's what he said, right? Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for righteousness, justice, they're the same word in Greek, to be fulfilled. Now, whether you've read Isaiah and puzzled over what he meant or not, you've certainly heard and thought about justice, haven't you? That desire for justice, for things to be fair, is another synonym we might use here, is part and parcel of our human nature, isn't it? We want things to be fair. We need things to be just. This is because we are made in the image of him who is justice, God himself. And in his image and in his likeness, we want to reflect God's justice and see his justice in the world around us. In our own day, that word justice has become a buzzword, hasn't it? You know what happens with buzzwords? They get thrown around, and so now everything and everyone is about justice. There's not just justice in the criminal courts, but there's justice in the climate. We need to have justice socially. We need to have educational justice. Everything is all about justice. But there's a funny thing that happens when you use the same word over and over and over again. It's like a rubber band, right? This is the same thing that happens with the word love. It gets stretched in all kinds of different ways and shapes, and before long, it's unrecognizable. People use this word, justice, without reference to our Father's justice or his righteousness or his fairness. Think of the cry for social justice that we hear. It's a term that's often used but is perhaps as puzzling as the book of Isaiah. Usually, the idea goes something like this. The world is divided up into those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed. And justice demands, doesn't it, that the oppressors should be removed and the oppressed should be saved. That sounds fair to us, doesn't it? It sounds like justice. But the trouble comes when we ask further questions, when we scratch below the surface. The surface. What exactly is the oppression? Is it unjust oppression that not everyone ends up with equal outcomes in life? Or is this part and parcel of the way God blesses his creatures? He provides for us all, but not in the exact same way. Our Father seems to delight, doesn't he, in giving some one blessing and in giving others another blessing. He delights in a diversity of outcomes. And rather than begrudge his provision and his blessing of others, we ought to praise him for what he gives to us as well as what he gives to them. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's never such a thing as injustice or unjust oppression. But what I'm saying to you this morning is that we should be discerning. Because not everyone who uses the word justice means what Jesus means. Is it unjust oppression to recognize God's order for his creation and to expect his good law to lead us and order us as individuals, as families, as a church, or even as a nation? Is it unjust oppression 
to call what he calls sin or to not bless or promote what he does not bless or promote? Is it unjust oppression to proclaim a message of repentance? We want justice, don't we? But the question is, whose justice will it be? And by what means? True justice, Jesus' justice and righteousness, that justice that the servant of the Lord will not rest until he brings about, comes apparently, Jesus says, through baptism. Jesus brings about your righteousness, not through educational reform, not through some kind of riotous activity, not through some kind of mass policy change or redistribution. He brings it about by a great exchange. Jesus' baptism is an initiation, isn't it? It initiates him on a mission as your substitute. It didn't seem righteous or just to John the Baptist. Why should the sinless Lamb of God go under the waters that John had labored to make clear were for sinners? But the truth is that this is precisely the way Jesus brings your righteousness about. He is initiated on a mission as your substitute. He begins there in the waters of the Jordan a great exchange. There is a highway that opens up for Jesus to travel from the Jordan River to Mount Calvary and the cross. Because that is the destination for the one who bears the sins of the world. The one who will satisfy God's just decrees, each and every one of his laws, both in what he does by perfectly obeying his Father, and also by what he suffers in your place, receiving the righteous judgment, the verdict of death that we as sinners deserve, even death on a cross. See, here is how Jesus really deals with that which oppresses us. Here is where Jesus really deals with that which is unjust. The oppression of sin and Satan are met and dealt with at the cross of Jesus. For Jesus, there is no going back on baptism. Once washed, he must continue. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he finishes what he is initiated into under John's hand. And that finishing of his work includes not only Mount Calvary, but it includes him being united to you now and of you being united to him. In his baptism, we see Jesus standing in with us, taking our side. What a marvelous thing that the sinless Lamb of God would take the place of sinners. And in your baptism, you are joined in with him. This is what we mean by the great exchange. He gets your sin and you get his righteousness. He gets your death and you receive his life. He gets your curse and you hear his blessing. He justly suffers for you so that you may justly be declared righteous in him. Here's how St. Paul puts it in Titus chapter 3. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal through the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously, so that being justified by his grace, we might receive adoption as heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's the justice that the servant of the Lord brings about. The world doesn't need more social justice warriors. It needs those who have been justified by grace. You, dear Christians, to make true... It needs us who have been justified by grace to make known the good news all about Jesus, that there is real justice to be found in and through him. And the font, the font of holy baptism stands central to Christ's work of bringing that justice to light. 
It will not be through the ever-expanding reform of education. It will not be through DEI programs. It will not be through riots. It will not be through government intervention. But it will be through the body of Jesus, the body of Christ, his church. In him, you become the righteousness of God. Now that vision seems rather dim, doesn't it? It looks like an unfinished puzzle work. The spirit working in us to bring it all to light doesn't look like all that much. But what seems to us to be a jumble of assorted shapes and sizes comes together in Christ. Who is this servant of the Lord who brings about the justice of God? Well, some of the church fathers put it this way. I think it's helpful for us. They said things like this. In scripture, we hear of the total Christ. Not Jesus standing alone, separate from us, but Jesus and his body, the church. His law, that is, his good word, has come to our coastland here, and now through you, through us, it resounds in praise to the Father and the witness of true justice to the world all around us. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it, when the puzzle pieces come together on our tables. But it is a more blessed thing, a more beautiful thing indeed, when all of us, like little pieces of the puzzle, are clicked together through holy baptism into Christ. To him be the glory now and always. Amen.